John chapter 6. As we get back into the Gospel of John, we've been studying through the Gospel of John. And here in the Gospel of John, Jesus does the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and we have the proclamation of Jesus in verse 35, I am the bread of life, which we studied on Easter Sunday. So we're going to pick up from where we left off on Easter and look this morning at verses 35 to about 47. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I, have come down from, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only He has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, He who believes has everlasting life. You know, what will it take for some people to believe in Jesus? You know, you have people in your life, we all do, friends, maybe family members, maybe someone at work, maybe another kid at school, and you feel like you've tried everything to talk to them about the Lord, and nothing seems to work. You've tried the soft sell, you know, invite them to Christmas Eve service. I mean, Christmas Eve, like who wouldn't come to Christmas Eve? And they hear the gospel there clearly. Uh, You've given them a book for their birthday, and it's a Christian book, but not super intense because you don't want to freak them out. You know, just kind of a, a mild, gentle Christian book, sort of an easy read. You've uh, had them over to dinner at your house, and you just happen to invite over a couple other friends who just happen to be from the church, uh, you know, and from the same town, and just hoping that they'll kind of talk to each other and maybe something will click. Uh, you, you've been nice to them, you've been patient, and, and no matter what you've done, you know, that soft sell hasn't worked. So you're like, fine, that's it. I'm going, going direct. I'm going to try the hard sell. So you call them up and you say, listen, I'm your friend. I've been your friend for 15 years. You know, you know I have this faith thing, and I've never told you about it, and I feel like for you to really understand my heart as your friend, I want to tell you about the gospel. Will you have coffee with me? Oh, okay. And you have coffee with them, and you lay out the gospel, and they go, wow, that's, that's great. I'm really glad that works for you. <sighs> you know? So then you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and, and like nothing works. You think, what, what's wrong with me? I, I'm a lousy, I'm a failed evangelist. 
Why, why doesn't this work? Two children grow up in the same home under the same parenting, listening to the same Bible stories, praying the same prayers, going to the same church, going to the same vacation Bible schools, going to the same Sunday school, and then they become young adults, and one is walking with the Lord, and the other wants nothing to do with it. Like, what did I do wrong as a parent? I, I, some, I, I must have done this one right or that one wrong. I failed. Did I, did I you know, drop that one on their head at the wrong point and they had a bad reaction? You know, what, what did I do? And we get so frustrated and discouraged at, at being failed evangelists. Well, I, I want to look at the story of Jesus today, and I, and I want to point out that our experience of failure is Jesus' experience as well except that his is on a much greater scale. He was a much bigger failed evangelist than you'll ever be because he spoke to thousands of people. You know, he preached. He preached like no one has ever preached before with power and authority as the Son of God. Uh, He loved people. You know, you try to be loving to people. Jesus loved people. He, he loved, you know, the outcast, and he was this super compassionate guy who saw the people as sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion for them. He did miracles. Don't you wish you could do a miracle? I, you know, it'd be great. Like, I wish, like, as a Christian, you got, like, one miracle token that you could use sometime. Like, if my atheistic boss would just see a miracle, maybe he'd stop blaspheming God at work, you know, and I could just do the miracle and be like, boom, what do you think of that? Believe in God now. And I'm sure he'd believe if he just saw a miracle, right? If you saw a miracle, you'd definitely believe, right? Well, here's Jesus preaching and loving and doing miracles. There were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people who had a direct experience of the preaching and the person and the power of Jesus Christ during his ministry. And very few believed. On the day of Pentecost, after three years of ministry, the the gathering of disciples happens in Jerusalem, and there's all 120 of them. Pretty meager results. And yet, unlike us, Jesus doesn't seem to get deflated. He doesn't beat himself up. He doesn't seem discouraged. He just keeps on preaching and keeps on ministering the gospel wherever he goes. Why is it? How is it that Jesus has this same experience of giving himself to sharing the gospel and preaching to people and pointing to himself, and so many of them disbelieve? What is it that kept Jesus going? And we're going to see in John 6... Another instance here of a failure in evangelism. But what keeps Jesus going is his understanding of the plan of God for salvation. Jesus understood what God was doing in salvation. And it was that understanding that he's going to let us see here today that enabled him to keep going and not be discouraged. So let's look at the passage again. Look at verse 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. 
It's an incredible statement, Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. In some ways, I think verse 35 is, is a bit of a high watermark for the ministry of Jesus. You know, that this is where the, the, he's at his best. At that moment in verse 35, he's done the feeding of the 5,000 at the beginning of chapter 6. Thousands of people are following him, so he feeds them miraculously. You know, there's 5,000 men he feeds. Plus, we know from the other Gospels, there were women there. There were children there. So he might have been ministering to maybe 10, 15,000 people. I mean, that's a high watermark to have 10, 15,000 people following you around out in the wilderness because they want to see your miracles and hear your teaching, and then you feed them all. And so they weren't understanding what the feeding meant, so Jesus then tells them very plainly, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But even at that moment, at this high water mark of ministry, verse 36, but as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All of those thousands of people, and generally speaking, Jesus could sort of generalize and say, you guys don't believe. It's a failure. They didn't believe. How could you not believe? How how could he do all those miracles and tell them who he is and the people still go, "Mm, no, no. They don't believe. They just want bread. And yet Jesus is not discouraged. Why? Because he understood the plan of God for salvation, what God's purposes were. And what is that plan? Well, in verses 37 to 40, he, he pulls back the curtain. In verses 37 to 40, God... Jesus gives us an inside peek at the secret things of God and what God is doing in saving people. And so we're going to really focus on verse 37, but then we'll also look at verses 38 through 40 to kind of expand verse 37. But let me just read it again. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so this is the plan of God. This is what keeps Jesus going. It's that verse 37, all the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes I will never drive away. Jesus understood that God had a purpose and a plan in saving people so that when vast numbers of people didn't believe, it it didn't throw him off. He didn't miss a beat. Let's take verse 37 and break it down because there's so much packed in there. It's such an incredible verse. There's, There's three major ideas in verse 37, and all of these ideas have a sequence to them, and they're all interlocked. So, so one leads to the next, which leads to the next. It makes me think of like a, a chain link. You know, we have one chain link, and it connects to the next chain link, and that connects to the next chain link. Um, th- this week, I, I took a, a few vacation days, and we did a, a staycation, you know, in our house. And one of the things we did is, as our family and our kids, we went around to some of the touristy things in Boston. Isn't it weird how you can live in Boston year after year and never do the, the touristy things? So I'd never been to the USS Constitution. Uh, I'd never seen Bunker Hill. So we're like, let's go do this. So we all went and, and saw it. And it was really cool. I, I loved it. And we, uh, when we went to the USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, you know, there are these Navy ships there, and they have these huge anchor chains. You know, these, like, you can't get these chains at Home Depot. You know what I'm saying? They're like huge, you know, 
the, the guys at the Charlestown shipyard when it was still working, you know, they forged these enormous chain links. It, and that's how I kind of envision verse 37. Three enormous chain links, huge ideas, enormous theological weighty truths, one linked to the next one, linked to the next one. And they all have a sequence, and they're all separate and yet inseparable. You can't separate these ideas from each other. So let's look at each of the chain links in verse 37 as we try to understand God's plan of salvation that fueled Jesus' ministry. So here's the first link, verse 37. All that the Father gives me. All right, stop right there. Here's the first link. The Father has given the Son a set group of people out of humanity. That in all the world, the Father has chosen some, He's elected some, and He's given them to the Son. The Father has given people to the Son. It occurs again in verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that He has given me. So there is past tense. People haven't all come to Jesus, but the Father has already given them. So, so the giving of the Father is what starts the chain of salvation. It all starts with the Father choosing to give some to the Son. You see, look at His words. It's right there. The Father gives to the Son. All right? This is a theme in the Gospel of John. Let me show it to you. Turn to John chapter 10, verse 25, page 1062 in the Pew Bible. John 10:25, it occurs again. John 10:25, and notice how similar John chapter 10, verse 25 and following is to John 6. Very similar. It's, it's kind of like echoes of each other. John 10, 25, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. I've been preaching, but you don't believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe. You know, again, I've been doing the ministry, but you guys aren't believing it. Why? Verse 26, because you are not my sheep. So the, believe, the not believing is a consequence of the not being sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Again, that sounds like John 6 where he's saying, you know, I, I, I will lose none that you have given me. No one will be lost of those given to the Son. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me. There's the same language. The Father has given the sheep to the Son. Or look at John chapter 17. The, a, another climaxing moment in the Gospel of John. We'll get there. I can't wait to preach John 17. The high priestly prayer of Jesus before He goes to the cross. And this idea of the Father giving some to the Son is there too. Look at verse 2. Jesus prays to the Father, For you granted Him... The Father granted the Son authority over all people. Jesus is the the sovereign over all people. In order that He might give eternal life to who? To all those you have given Him. Verse 6. I have revealed you. To whom? To those you gave me out of the world. So there's the world. It's filled with people. 
And there is a subset of people within the world that the Father has already given, past tense, it's already taken place, the Father has already given them to the Son, and Jesus says, I'm revealing you to the people you gave me. That's who I'm, I'm not revealing them to the whole world, I'm just revealing you to those you've given me. Verse 9, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. So there's this teaching of Jesus where he pulls back the curtain a little bit and lets us see that, the, that salvation starts. Salvation doesn't start when you hand somebody a gospel track. Salvation starts in eternity past where the Father has chosen to give some to the Son. And so really what we're, we're seeing here is this doctrine that theologians call predestination. Jesus doesn't use the word predestination, just like he doesn't use the word trinity when he talks about the trinity. Though predestination is a biblical word, it's in the Bible, that the Bible teaches predestination. How it works out is the tricky thing to understand. But there it is. Here is the Father, destining, choosing, setting apart. Some people call it predestination. Some people call it election. You know what I call it? I call it the deep end. Because when I get into this topic, I can't touch and I can't see the bottom. This is the deep end. These are the deep things of God. It's just like the Trinity. It's the deep things of God. Have you ever been out in the ocean? I don't know if someone's gone out in a boat in the ocean. Have you ever gotten far enough out in the ocean that you can't even see land anymore? And then have you ever jumped off the boat and swum around? It's a creepy feeling where you can't see the bottom. You don't know how deep it is. You don't know what's underneath you. It's, it's disorienting. It's kind of What's down here? Where am I? I'm just out in the ocean. I'm in the deeps. And, and I feel like when we get to that line about the Father giving some to the Son, we're in the deeps. We're in the deep things of God. And it's, it's mysterious. It, and it's disorienting. It's, it's troubling in some ways. You know, if, if you ever really want to dig into the Bible and really study what the Bible has to say, Sooner or later, you're going to start bumping up against this idea that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God is God. You know, I had a guy come up to me after the service and say, what does that mean, God is sovereign? You know, the word sovereign is just like a king. You know, we keep singing about Jesus as my king. You are my king. We're saying that over and over. But like, what does that mean? Kings are sovereign. Kings do as they please. I remember when I was in, when I really started wrestling with this in the Bible is when I was in seminary. It took me till seminary and professors like sticking my face in the Bible, like pointing out verses like this to me. And I was like, what, what does this mean? And I was really wrestling with it. I was really troubled. And while I was in seminary, uh, wrestling with this for about two years, really just troubled by this idea and couldn't figure it out, couldn't get my head around it. And I had a, uh, a pastor friend, actually the pastor under whose ministry I had I'd come to faith in Jesus, this pastor just called me, you know, coincidentally, out of the blue. He's like, how you doing? How's seminary? How's everything going? I was like, oh, it's good. It's good. And then he just asked me flat out, 
He's like, how are you doing with the sovereignty of God? I was like, how did you know that? You know, so it must just be a thing seminarians wrestle with. And I was like, ah, not good, not, not doing well. He's like, yeah, yeah. He goes, I know, I went through the same thing. And he said, it finally came down to one question for me, Jeremy, and I'm going to ask the question to you. Is God God or isn't he? Is God God or not? If he's God, then he's God. <laughs> you know? Being God means you can do what you want. We say that about each other. Who do you think you are, God? That guy thinks he's God. He thinks he can do whatever he wants. But like, what if you are God? Well, then you're God. And you're the Lord. And you're sovereign. Now, we're so big on rights in our country. Everyone's got a right to do everything. But in the grand scheme of things, we have zero rights. God has all the rights. Because this is his world. We're the dust. He made us. He owns us. He, he's the potter. We're the clay. You know, how can that which is, is made say to that which has made it, why did you make me this way? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some things for noble purposes and some things for innoble purposes? God can do what he wants. He's God. It's really humbling, you know. I, I think this, this idea of the sovereignty of God is so good for our souls because it just pulverizes our pride. It just takes a steamroller and drives it over all of my pretensions as I realize God is God. And it's kind of liberating. Like Someone told me, they said, yeah, you know, when you're out in the deep ocean, your temptation is to thrash around and swim around. He says, but what you learn when you're out in the deep ocean is you just got to float. You just got to float. At some point, you just have to say, I'm in the deep things of God, and I don't understand these things. And why should I? God is, is beyond me. But he's king. He's the Lord. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will harden who he wants to harden. And at some point, we surrender ourselves to this great truth that cannot ultimately be explained or synthesized into our little puny brains. He's God. And the Father gives whom he wishes to the Son. As it says in Psalm 115, verse 2, Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. That's a good memory verse for you this week. Psalm 115, 2. Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. That's what it means to be God. And now that leads to the second chain link. Go back to John 6, 37. Here's the second massive, weighty, theological link that is linked to the first truth. So these two can't be separated. They go together. The second link is, verse 37, chapter 6, all the Father gives me, here's the second link, will come to me. So those that the Father has given will come. Anyone who comes to Jesus comes to Jesus because the Father has given. It's a cause and effect. One leads to the next. We come because we were given by the Father to the Son. What does it mean to come to the Son? Well, it means to believe in Him. 
Look at verse 35 again. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. So coming to Jesus is identical with believing in Jesus. It, it means to put your faith in him. Verse 47, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. Uh, I'm jumping around here like crazy. Verse 28, they asked him, what, what, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe. So we have to believe. You know, it's, That's important because I think when you start hearing you know, the deep things of God and predestination. It's like, well, you know, does that, does that mean this is just fate? Listen, Jesus is not teaching a Christian version of fatalism. Fatalism is the idea that no matter what you do, whether you believe or don't believe, whether you go left or right, it doesn't matter. Fate's just going to happen, so why even try? This isn't fatalism. Your belief matters. You really do have to believe. God commands all people everywhere to believe. If you want to be saved, you have to believe. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you won't be saved. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be held accountable for that on the great judgment day. So believe. You have to believe. We're not robots. We're not puppets. We're real people, real moral beings who have a choice, and we have to believe. And so you've got to hold on to that truth. But then you have to hold on to it as well as the other truth that the reason we believe is because the Father, the reason we choose is because the Father has chosen us. You've got to hold on to those together. So, so this is the trick to this. It's figuring out what God's told us and holding on to that. So you've got these two links and you've got to grab both. I think when, when Christians get off track with these mysterious truths is when they let go of one or they let go of the other. You know, some people let go of the truth of believe and it's like, look, God's predestined everything, so why even get out of bed? You know, no, 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 no. You have to believe. We're accountable for our actions. We're real moral agents in the world. Hold on to that. But also hold on to the other truth of God's sovereignty and understand that our, our choosing Him is a result of Him choosing us. And, and then you say, wait a minute, this is really hard to understand. How do these two things fit together? How could those both be true? How can our choosing and God's choosing fit together? Here's the answer. I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Because God explained that both of those are true, but he didn't tell me how they're both true. I also don't know how the Trinity is true. How can there be one God, only one God, but within the one God is a relational community of three persons? I don't know. It's a mystery. But that's because we're in the deep things of God. And why do I think that I should be able to fully understand the deep things of God? Why do I think God is so simple that I should be able to just explain him with a little math formula to you? This is what God is like. Makes sense. A plus B equals C. Done. You know? God thought up DNA. Like, how complex and awesome and wise must his thoughts be? How, how spectacularly great must the mind of God be? You know, oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. We can't know his mind. He's awesome. So what we know is what he's revealed. And what he's revealed is there's these two links, and so you've got to hang on to both of them that he is sovereign and his choosing 
is determinative. And yet, we are real beings and we must believe and we're held accountable for our believing or not believing. And it's a great mystery because we, you know, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. And then that leads to the third link, the final link, which is going back to verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, here's the third link, Jesus says, I'll never drive away. So, so all the Father has given will come and believe. And everyone who comes and believes, Jesus says, I'm not driving you away, which is a, a negative way of saying, I will hold on to you. I'm not going to lose you. And he says that positively. Look, look, he repeats this. You know, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me. Those who are given, none are lost. Of all those given, none are lost. Nobody drops out in this process. You can't fall away. We try, but it doesn't work. (laughs) We, We try our best to sabotage our salvation, and God will not let it happen. You know? You can't lose your salvation because God won't let it happen. He holds on to those who are truly His. Jesus does. He is faithful. You know, I was talking to a brother between services, and we were just saying, you know, it's so frustrating. You become a Christian, and God teaches you these life lessons, and two years later, you start forgetting the life lessons, and you start doing the dumb things that you did before you learned the lesson. Like, why did I forget that lesson? And it's like, man, how do I remember this stuff? And, I, and, and we both came to the conclusion, isn't it great to know that underneath my forgetting and re-remembering and having to keep teaching these things, there is the hand of Jesus saying, I will not lose you. I will cause you to remember. I will carry you through. You know, Verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up. So everyone who truly believes will be raised up. There's no such thing as people who truly believe but aren't raised up. Because Jesus guarantees it by His power. Verse 44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So there's no such thing as people who are drawn by God and brought to God by God's power who then don't get raised up. There's no such category. It's it's linked. The work of God to save a people. The Father has chosen a flock that He has given to the Son. That That flock finds Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. They come to him. They believe. And then Jesus makes sure that every single sheep makes it to the end. Not because of who we are, but because of his power and his plan and his purpose. It's awesome. Or to put it another way, Jesus is not a failed Savior. He's not a failed Savior. His mission is clear. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me. This is God's will. This is the mission I'm on, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. That's his mission. And he will succeed. So when Jesus looked out at the sea of humanity and he kept preaching his heart out and kept loving them and kept doing miracles, and the overall response to Jesus was, mm in his life, in his face, rejecting him, arguing with him, he wasn't flummoxed because he knew that for all the, these out there, there would be a person here, there would be two people there, there would be four people over here, one by one, who would hear 
the shepherd's voice. And while the world was saying no, there were a few people who would be saying yes. And these were the ones that the Father had given, and they would come, and he wouldn't lose them. He's so faithful because that was his mission, and he's a successful, powerful, mighty Savior. That's what propelled him forward. These are tough things, aren't they? It's, it's so weird. It's like, on the one hand, so encouraging, but on the other hand, like, so disorienting. You know, the deep things of God are, are also disorienting in some ways, and it raises all kinds of questions, practical questions, personal questions, philosophical questions. You, you know, one of the common questions that we have is, is just the view of God that it gives us. It kind of feels like God isn't very fair. Like, is God fair? He doesn't seem very fair here. You know, it's like picking some people but not others. It doesn't seem fair. I mean, as a parent, I, tr- I strive to be fair. I try to treat my children equally so that they can't say that I'm, I'm being unfair. And yet, here's God. He seems to be saving some but not others. It doesn't seem very fair. It's like, you know, like the, we're, the, life, the Titanic is going down. You know, they just re-released that movie. It's the anniversary this year of the Titanic. So, so the Titanic's going down, and people are on the rails of the Titanic screaming, save me, save me, save me. And, and it's as if God is out there with a very limited number of lifeboats. And he's like, you know, only certain people are getting on the lifeboats. Sorry, you're not getting on. Please save me. No, you're not getting on. It's like, that just, it just seems like a weird picture of God, that he's sort of arbitrary and unfair. Well, there's another, there's another theological piece that has to go into this that we haven't quite talked about yet, but it comes out in verses 41 to 44. And, and if you don't have this other piece, then this idea of God's plan to save some will seem arbitrary and it, it's sort of unfair. But when you add this other piece in, it helps out. Now, that other piece that you have to grab, grasp is the profound reality of human sinfulness and rebellion. That's another piece. Look at it here. Look in verses 41 to 45, and I just want to point out four examples of how the reality of sinful humanness and sinful rebellion of people comes out that kind of sweeps the legs out from the the fairness objection. So here's the first observation. Verses 41 to 42, look at how the people responded. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? I mean, look, people don't respond. They, they don't believe it. Jesus makes these huge claims, and people don't like it. They, they, they don't listen. They don't accept it. They push back on it. What do you mean you came from heaven? We know your parents. You're from Nazareth. Let me tell you, we've been to Nazareth. That place is no heaven, okay? You know what I'm saying? You didn't come from heaven. You came from Nazareth. I know your dad. I know your mom. What, what do you mean you came down from heaven? That's, that's just weird, crazy talk. What are you talking about, Jesus? It's so, so they don't accept his claims. They grumble against him. And by the way, don't miss this. This is just a little subtle thing. But verses 41 and 42 is deja vu all over again. All right? It's Old Testament Israel grumbling in the wilderness. And here they are again. You know, the, the old, Israel in the Old Testament in the wilderness... That's just all throughout chapter 6. The Moses imagery, the manna imagery, Jesus feeding them in the wilderness. And here's another little parallel between those two. The grumbling of the Israelites against the Lord in the face of great miracles. In fact, verse 41, that word grumble is very intentionally placed here. At this, the Jews began to grumble. 
And that's how we are. We, we grumble against the Lord. We, we don't like the claims of Jesus. We don't like the claims of Jesus on our lives. We don't like the, this idea that he came from heaven, which means he has authority. We, we, you know, we grumble against that. We grumble at the ideas of God's sovereignty. You know, it, it just bothers us. And so we're like the Israelites, grumble, grumble, grumble. Because that's, that's who we are by nature. We don't want to accept it. The second observation of sinful human, sin, human sinfulness that we have in our hearts toward God. Look at verses 43 and 44. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. So here's observation number two. Look at that word. No one can come to me. No. Underline, circle, put stars around that word can. The Greek word means no, no one is able. No one has capacity. You don't have the ability to come to Jesus on your own. Why? Because we are stuck in our sins. We love sin so much. <laughs> we, we love being our own little gods so much. We love living our lives on our terms so much. We're so obsessed with and we desire it so much that, that we've enslaved ourselves to ourselves. And, and we can't go away. We, we can't think of something else. We're not able. In other words, if, if God just stood there and said, hey, everybody come to Jesus, no one would ever if God didn't intervene and do something dramatic because we don't want it. We don't want to hear it. There's no really such thing as a seeker. Well, there is. We're just seeking our own happiness, our own pleasure, our own pride, our own accomplishments, our own way. That's my natural inclination. In other words, the Titanic imagery is all messed up. There aren't any people on the rails screaming, save me, Jesus. All of humanity is in the dining room. We don't want to leave the Titanic. You know, who wants to be on the little Jesus is Lord lifeboat? I don't want Jesus as Lord. I want to be on the do-it-your-own-way Jeremy Titanic. You know, and even when the Titanic is sinking and the whole thing's going down, we, we, we sort of convince ourselves it's okay. Like, this, this is a lovely tilt to the dining room tonight, you know? And it's like, the, the, the world is, is breaking. The world is falling apart. And people are okay. It's freedom. It's self-expression. You know, we're finally throwing off the shackles of authority. And, and we think dark is light. We think light is dark. We think wrong is right and right is wrong. Even though the whole boat is going down in the waters of judgment, we think it's great. We think this is, you know, proof that we're finally free to be who we we're meant to be and all this stuff. We, we don't willingly get off the Titanic. We don't want anything to do with the Jesus as Lord lifeboat. That's not our nature. Which leads to the third observation, verse 44. No one can, no one is able, no one has the capacity. That's what that word means. To come, you can't come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. You have to be drawn. So, so tightly do we have a death grip on the Titanic that got us to draw us. That word draw is a, probably a little bit too weak of a translation. It's something more like drag. It's like haul. We have to be hauled out of the Titanic that word is the word used of drawing a sword out of its scabbard. Swords don't come out of their scabbards. They have to be drawn out. It's the word used in the Gospels of fishermen, drawing a net. You know, think of a fisherman on a boat, and, and there he is in the, the sun, 
his shirt is off, his, all his muscles are you know, articulated as he's straining, hauling these fish that don't want to come up. They don't want to be hauled up, and he's pulling this heavy net up into the boat. It's that kind of exertion. It's the same word that's used to describe it when Paul was forcibly drug out of the temple by the mob. You know, you can just imagine Paul kicking and screaming, and they're just dragging him out of the temple. It's a very strong word. You know, and that's what it takes. Because I don't want the Lord. He had to drag me out. He had to haul me out. I love the line of uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, where he says, I went kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. And that's how it is. You know, God has to drag us out. This Titanic sinking, I don't care. You know, I'd rather go to hell. That's where my friends are. We're going to party in hell. You have no idea what you're saying. And so because we're so rendered spiritually stupid by sin... God has to, like, grab us. You know, the building's on fire. The fireman has to kick the door in, and there's the kid playing the Xbox. No, I I can't leave now. I'm almost ready to beat the game. You know, and the fireman's like, the building's on fire. I don't care. I'm at the level, you know. And he slapped the Xbox away, grabbed the kid, and like, you're getting out of this building. That's what it takes to save sinners. So God is hauling people into the kingdom. Or the fourth observation, and this is the same idea as dragging, except it's a little bit nicer. Verses, verse 45, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. God has to teach us. God has to instruct our hearts. We have to be born again. The Holy Spirit has to speak to us. The preacher has to preach. The evangelist has to evangelize. The friend has to share the gospel. But God has to speak to the heart and make the person born again. So really what we're talking about here, I think, from verses 41 to 44, is we've got to do just a little mental welding and kind of put in another chain link. There's actually four chain links here in this, these verses. The first chain link is God has given some to be saved, the great mystery of God's election and choosing, which is hard to fathom. Then here's where the second one comes in. All those who have given, been given, the Father one by one will haul them, drag them, teach them, make them born again, whatever image you want to use from the New Testament. And then those who are given and those who are drug believe as a result of the work of God in their hearts. So that's the part where we come in. We have to believe. But we believe we're enabled to believe because of God's gracious work of salvation in us, which then results in Jesus making sure that all those who've believed who've been given have eternal life. And so it is because of this comprehensive understanding of God's work and salvation that Jesus isn't flummoxed by their unbelief. That's why he didn't get all discouraged when all the crowds were like, no, we don't believe. We just want bread. Feed us, please. More food. We don't really believe you're the Messiah, but feed us. It didn't bother him because he knew that God was at work. And here's the encouraging thing for us today. This is all still true. God still has people in this world that the Father has given to the Son. There are people on the south shore of Boston that the Father has given to the Son. And it's still true that people are coming to Jesus today. And it's still true that Jesus will not lose anyone who's been given to him. Isn't that encouraging for us? Just, you know, it's so encouraging 
Can I just sort of end this sermon by giving you three encouragements drawn out of this text? Three things to take home with you. Three encouragements, and I, I want to, there are three don'ts. So I want to encourage you with three don'ts. Don't number one, don't be discouraged. Don't look at the responses of people that you love and get all frustrated and say, ah, I'm so, you know, this isn't working. Look, you got to look at God and say, God's purposes will not be thwarted. There's always hope with God. I love the songs we sang this morning about, you know, Savior, He can move a mountain. There's some people that you love that you wish would come to the Lord, but it's like moving a mountain. Our God can move mountains. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. Just keep your faith in the power of God. Not, don't, don't look at the reactions of the people. Just keep encouraged by thinking about God's sovereignty. Here's encouragement number two based on this text. Number one, don't be discouraged. Number two, don't feel guilty for no reason. Again, I think some of us feel guilty. Ah, oh, I failed. That's why they don't believe. I didn't say the right thing. I didn't do the right thing. That's why my children don't believe because I failed somewhere along the way as a parent. You know, it's me. I kept them from salvation. If I'd just done this or if I'd just done that. You know, that's not true. We have a responsibility to be faithful witnesses, but it's God who opens hearts and God who changes lives. God is sovereign over that. And, and we have to be faithful to Him in that process. But He's the one who does it. You know, some of us have this weird view of evangelism that I like to call safe-cracking evangelism. You guys know safe-cracking? You've seen this in the movies. I've never done it myself. But, uh, you know, safe-cracking, the guy sneaks into the house, he finds the safe, and, you know, what does he put in his ears? A little stethoscope. He puts the stethoscope up to the safe, and then he sits there and he turns the dial, listening to the tumblers click waiting to get just the right combination. And I think that's how some of us think about evangelism, that each person is a little safe, and it's up to me to get the right combination. I've got to say the right words at the right time and not offend them in the wrong way. You know, be really careful. And I've got to bring them to church on the right Sunday. And it's like, oh, no, they finally came, and Jeremy's preaching about predestination. <laughs> no. I wish he would tell me when he was preaching sermons that were going to scare people away. Like, you guys got to have more confidence in God's Word than that, people. God's Word is awesome. You can never box it in and say, well, this part of God's Word will save people, but that part of God's Word won't. Where do you get that idea? That's crazy. God's Word is powerful and effective, even the hard things. So, so we're not there cracking a safe trying to figure out the right combination to get people to believe. Let me give you a different image of evangelism, the more biblical image, a more biblically aligned image. It's, uh, th- I think evangelism is more like a paper boy or paper girl. Now, anyone here who's under the age of like 25, you have no clue what I'm talking about. But when I was a kid, <laughs> newspapers were delivered by paper boys. Was anyone here ever a paper boy or paper girl? Uh, see, look at this. That's, it was a legitimate profession when we were kids. All right, so this is what paper boys would do. This is what they would do. This is back when people actually read paper, uh, and it wasn't on a screen. So, so you, would, you would get on your bike, and you would have either a big basket of papers hanging off the front of your bike, or you'd have two bags strapped, up, which was very precarious for biking, you know? And you go down the street on this bike, 
and it was an art. I mean, the paper boy, this was an art. You would take the paper and you would toss it onto the front lawn and you go by every house, you toss it onto the driveway and you toss it on whatever the person, you'd learn where each person wanted it tossed. And a good paper boy would make it land right there. He'd deliver the news. That's what we're supposed to do in evangelism. We're just people who, who spread the news. We just go every day, tell people about the Lord. Sometimes you've got to go to the same house again and again and again. Some people read the paper. Some people throw it away. Some people clip coupons. I don't know. People do different things with the paper. It's not my responsibility. I just got to keep faithfully tossing the paper. Or to use a very biblical image, same idea. It's like sowing seed. I'm just called to sow the seed. It lands on all different kinds of soils. There's all different kinds of responses. I'm not in the soil management business. I'm not there to make the soil respond this way or that way. I'm just there to keep throwing the seed, sometimes on the same plot over and over. Just keep at it. Which leads me to my third encouragement. So it's don't be discouraged. Don't beat yourself up. And number three, don't give up. Just keep at it. Because you don't know what the Lord's going to do. You don't know when he's going to do it. We don't know who belonged to the Lord and who doesn't. Predestined people don't have big chalk marks on their heads. We're just called to share the gospel with everyone we can everywhere. Even someone who's really hostile to you now may be someone that God's going to work in down the road. You don't know. Just keep at it. Keep faithful. Keep preaching. Keep sharing. You know? I, sometimes people say, well, you know, this idea of God's sovereignty, it really makes me not want to do evangelism. I, I feel the exact opposite. I say this gives me encouragement to do evangelism because I know that I don't have to figure it out. I just have to be faithful, and God is going to use it. You know, if, if I believed that it was up to me to crack the big safe called the South Shore of Boston, I would have given up a long time ago. There are just too many sort of mental and cultural impediments to the gospel here in New England. There are just sort of commonly held beliefs that people in New England have that are antithetical to principles within the gospel. So if I had to, like, argue everyone into the kingdom, it would just be exhausting. It's so good to know. we just got to be faithful with the gospel, and God has people here who are going to come. We just have to be faithful and love people. That's why, by the way, missions make sense. That's why it's not a stupid idea to give your life to go to a difficult place where people don't want to hear about Jesus and tell them about Jesus anyway. You know, some of you here, I'm thinking of like young adults especially, college students, high school students, even middle school students. Like, it's not a crazy idea to give up the American dream and instead exhaust your life in a difficult place, speaking to people who don't want to hear the message. The world says, that's stupid. But not if God has a people. You know, the Scripture promises us that on that last day when we stand before the throne, there will be a people from every what? Tribe, tongue, language, nation, every people. So you can go to the hard places where people don't want to hear and tell them about Jesus, not because you're some smart guy who's going to figure out how to contextualize the message perfectly. It's just because you know that God has a people and he will save them. And so just go and and throw your life away. Or is it really throwing it away? 
I can't promise you wealth in life. I can't promise you riches. But I can promise you that if you give your life for the gospel, God's purposes will be accomplished. And so I think the idea of the sovereignty of God and salvation should just be this huge furnace fueling missions, especially to the hard places, to the unreached places. It's not stupid to give up the American dream for the sake of the gospel. Okay, one final word, then I'll be done. And this is a long sermon, but that's what happens when you're in the deep end. You get long sermons. One final word to those here who wouldn't call yourselves Christians. Maybe you're the one who did get drugged here by a friend, and you know what they're doing. They're trying to witness to you, but you came anyway because you're humoring them. Um, you know, this sermon's kind of been to Christians in a lot of ways, but maybe for those of you who, who aren't there or you wouldn't consider yourselves there, and, and maybe, you know, you hear this kind of teaching from Jesus and you think like, well, what's the point? If I'm not one of those chosen people, like, why even try? Well, let, let me turn the question around. What if you are? How do you know? <laughs> let me ask you this. What's going on in your heart? Do you, do, you, do you hear that voice in there, the small voice of God do you feel yourself, despite all of your efforts, being drawn? When, when you think about the Titanic going down, is there a part of you that's like, yeah, I'm clinging to that Titanic and this is stupid. Why am I doing this? Is, is there a part of you that's hearing about a Savior for sinners and it's, there's something that's just a little bit appealing toward that? What if, crazy idea, what if the creator of the universe is quietly drawing you right now? What if? Why are you even here this morning? Isn't that weird? What is God doing? And so I would just encourage you to go with it. Put your faith in Christ. Keep following that voice. It's the voice of the Spirit in your soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I praise you. I give you glory because you are God. You save whom you will by your power. I do not understand it, but Lord, we glory in the deep things of God and we just rest in you. Lord, I pray that an awareness of your sovereignty would propel this congregation to greater evangelism and more fervent commitment to foreign missions. Lord, I pray that a great confidence in your saving plan not just to offer salvation, but to actually save. Lord, I pray that that confidence would push us out to more bold mission, whether here on the South Shore or to the hardest parts of the world. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you that that they would hear that work of the Spirit, the teaching of God in their hearts, and that, Lord, they would see the goodness of Jesus and they would rejoice. Lord, we trust you, we love you. Make our church more missions-minded. Make our church more evangelistically-minded. But not an evangelism driven by guilt and pressure, but an evangelism joyously set free by your sovereign grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.